Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. Today I'm joined by John Perkis. John, I'm delighted to have you on Life Beyond the Numbers. Thank you for inviting me. John, I heard an interview you did recently and you talked about how your purpose is to change the world in a positive way. Can you tell us what that means? Well, it's interesting you say that. I've I've been following a particular guru for the last six years, and he said recently, life has no purpose. But it is is meaningful. (laughs) But anyway, if we go with changing the world in a positive way, what seems to be happening is I just find myself drawn to anything that helps change the world in a positive way. And that can happen in many contexts. I mean, business is one, writing books is another, even photography. I mean, all kinds of things. But business, yeah, it can definitely happen in business. Your background is quite fascinating. Cambridge, INSEAD, headhunter, author, started businesses. There's so much. Where do we go this morning? Well, whatever you want to talk about, I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the headhunter angle, but yes. there's so much about what we just talked about, making life meaningful and your purpose. Yes. So maybe what brought you to where you are today. Oh, okay. Oh, I can tell you that bit. So essentially, I had a very mainstream academic background. So, you know, in the UK, a lot of people used to go to grammar schools as opposed to private schools. And so I went to one of those, which was very academic and got into Cambridge. One thing I noticed was that our school was great. Although it was free at the peak, about 15% of the people went to Oxford and Cambridge, which was high for a state school. But I also noticed that among those people, there were a number of suicides. And I kind of parked that in my mind. So I went to Cambridge, I worked in banking and consulting, and I went to INSEAD and everything worked brilliantly. And they gave me first prize at INSEAD. And then I got completely stuck. And three months after leaving INSEAD, I was diagnosed with depression. So one of the primary symptoms being that you have suicidal thoughts. Wow. So How old were you now, John? I was 26. So I had this, you know, it's in our culture. I had this idea that I might not live beyond 27, you know, the famous people who die at 27 thing. And it, in my case, it nearly happened. So I realized, okay, so I've done all this left brain clever stuff, you know, like accounting, finance, languages, strategy, marketing, da 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 And I feel suicidal. So clearly I am missing something. My father was in sales, my brother's in sales. And I realized there were people who are far less academic than me who were leading much happier lives and we're not trying to kill themselves. So I then got involved in sales and then that didn't really work out all that well. And then one day I was in Paris um, running a business, which basically wasn't working at all. 
In fact, Paris had completely closed down, as it does occasionally, with you know, strikes. And, and oh, yeah, so. okay, yeah, yeah. And, and I was reading this book called A Rich Man's Secret, which sounded kind of promising. And I started copying what the protagonist in the book did. Yes. And, I st- and basically, it was all about returning to the present. It was, he kept saying, now knows, return to now. So I kept kind of returning to the present. And what I noticed was my intuition suddenly became much stronger. And I, I was brought up as a Christian. So I essentially got asked to be guided and I just let go completely. And then six months later, I had this great job working for the chairman of Hydric and Struggles, one of the big five search firms. I was working for the chairman of Hydric and Struggles in London. So I've been trying to earn a certain amount of money for years. And it happened automatically as soon as I let go. It's quite spooky. The base salary was within 2% of my goal, which I'd been failing to meet for years. Wow. Anyway, so that kind of introduced me to the idea that you know, intellect and training and all these things that accountants and MBAs do, it's all really good. However, it's only half the story at most. I mean, you could say it's a tiny part. It's like a tool. Like the analysis is a tool, right? And, and there's something much bigger going on, which we can tune into. And so, so I've been a headhunter since 97. So I'm a partner with a firm called August Leadership now, which is a new global search firm. And when I meet people, you know, I, I have, well, I used to have cups of coffee. Now I have virtual cups of coffee yes. with chief executives and everything. And, you know, and then we say, they say, well, I'm looking for this job. Okay, fine. Okay. And I said, well, show me your CV. And we talk about how they could improve their brand and their LinkedIn page. And, you know, my third question is, do you meditate? <laughs> Which is kind of shorthand for, have you begun the journey? <laughs> and, the, and the journey, the journey, you know, because most of us have been conditioned to think in, I would call it a very two-dimensional way. So accounting and finance usually involves looking at a piece of paper or looking at a screen in two dimensions, right? Yeah, and it's black or white. It's black or white, it's two dimensions, and we've been conditioned to think that way. Well, Cosmos doesn't work like that. (laughs) Cosmos works in many, many dimensions, and it's not linear. And I'm I'm sure people listening to this have experienced it. Certain very important things happen in our lives which are not linear, they're not analytical, and they change everything. And so, for example, my, my letting go and getting this great job at Hydrogen Struggles was an example of that. I mean, when I was 35, I was suddenly recruiting finance directors in the FTSE 100. So it's pretty dramatic change. And actually it was less effort than before. So, you know, we've also been conditioned to think that we, all this stuff about no pain, no gain, all that stuff. It's not true. These days I'm very, very active, but it's not a struggle. My mind and body are very active and I kind of observe my body and my mind being very active uh, it's not like it's, it's it's not full of stress anymore so when you say that you observe your mind and body being active yeah <laughs> what does that look like well i can tell you how it feels which might yes. okay. help the people listening so a lot of most people i think particularly in the west have been conditioned to believe that they are the body mind. So Eckhart Tolle, in the, uh, by the way, the, the Power of Now, famous yes. book, was, yes. was published the year after I learned to meditate by accident. Well, allegedly by accident, you know. Okay. So I learned in 96, and I didn't really know what I was doing. And the following year, 97, The Power of Now was published, right? And I kind of, I realized, oh, that's what I've been doing. And he doesn't use the word mindfulness because he says it's a misnomer. But he's talking about being present, right? Yes. And so one way or another, it could be you read the power of now or you learn mindfulness or you do yoga or you learn transcendental meditation. You learn, you do something, right? Or maybe you sit on a mountain and your mind goes silent. 
but at some point, hopefully, most of us realize that we are not the body and we're not the mind. So the mind is basically just a stream of thoughts. I mean, in the West, the mind is treated as a thing. So we have this whole industry that analyzes this thing. Well, I've had 18 months of Freudian psychoanalysis when I was in my mid-20s. I can tell you, we, we identified all the problems. We didn't solve any of them. So we analyzed the thing. I mean, to put it crudely, I would say, you can an either analyze this thing or you can flush it away. <laughs> I prefer to flush it away rather than analyze it. Yeah, and flushing it away sounds much simpler. It is very simple once you know how to do it, yeah. And so, yeah. But, but just to complete this, this train of thought, if you like, what, what happens when we learn to meditate or yoga or whatever it is, is we realize we're not the stream of thoughts, which in the West is called the mind, and we're not the body. We are actually consciousness, which is observing all of that. And I think people experience this, like some people, when they go running, they kind of notice their body. After a certain point, you notice your body running. These apps like the Headspace app or whatever, yeah. I used to know the founder of Headspace, Andy Puddicum, and essentially, if you use an app like that, you're, I mean, he does it in the app. He, he helps you to observe your thoughts, like observing traffic. You know. But clearly, you're not the traffic. You're observing the traffic. Well, also, you can change your thoughts. Of course. So they're once your you, thoughts. Once, once you know how to do it. You, well, I give you actually a really simple exercise which I look is, I like is something like stare at your thumbnail. And if you notice, if you stare at your thumbnail, your thought patterns change. Yes. In seconds. Yeah. So but you, if you put on a music, your thought patterns will change. So yeah. clearly, clearly we, are not, we are not our thoughts because we can, if we know what to do, we can change them, right? Yeah. And, and actually movement is one of the big things, I yeah. believe, as well. That the minute you move, yeah. you automatically start to change your thinking. Yeah, exactly. It's a bodily thing. I mean, I noticed when I was in deepest depression that going to dancing classes helped because it... it it moved my attention out of my head into my body. I mean, I probably trod on a few people's feet, <laughs> but it did change my thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fascinating. And then being guided by your intuition. <laughs> well, I just said guided. I said guided. So in the West, again, you know, we had this, well, I would say the Abrahamic religions. So Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they, you know, they all belong together. They all go back to Abraham. And, so most people running around in the West have been conditioned by one of those three religions. And the conditioning is that we're the body mind and, and there's God who is separate from us. <laughs> and then actually I have Jewish friends who said after the Holocaust, they gave up on the idea of God, mm. which is understandable, right? So mm. now we have a culture in which most people don't believe in God anymore, mm -hmm. but we do believe we're separate from mm -hmm. each other and from the earth. And therefore, we create all this mess, right? We have violence. And also, we, we destroy our environment. And we abuse animals. You know, the Danes are talking about gassing and burning 20 million mink, all this stuff. Well, you know, that's, that comes out of separation. It comes out of this illusion that we're separate. Yeah. But we've all been conditioned that way. I mean, I studied economics. Economics assume that we're all separate entities trying to maximize our utility. There's a lot more being done now about how that model just doesn't work. It doesn't well, I mean, it, make sense. It does work at a basic level, but, but for example, it, it doesn't account for... The human being. Well, you, you know... Having what about, choice. What about falling... Well, you have choice, but you know, what about, what about falling in love? What about doing yeah. things for which you will receive no benefit? Yes. What about... Create, I mean, for example, you know, 
if you let go completely, you, you suddenly become much more creative. Well, how does that fit? You know. It's quite funny, actually. I sometimes go back to Cambridge and have these conversations. I had this conversation with someone. Someone was working on the economics of religion. They were trying to apply neoclassical microeconomics to religion to try and work out why religion was rational. Well, I mean, it's interesting. You're trying, to, you're trying to impose a model on, on something which is thousands of years older. Right? Yeah, but I suppose you also learn by exploring stuff and, and I mean, trying to figure ex- things out. It's a valid yeah. experiment. I mean, you may well discover there's something more going on, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, finance people, John, often without stereotyping all of us into yeah. one bucket, but yeah, yeah. we tend to kind of hold on to our academic qualifications like some sort of shield. Yes, of course. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at some point you have to let go of the transactional side of things and become yeah. more ingrained into the relationship side yeah. of things. I mean, you don't have to. I mean, some people cling to the transaction thing the whole of their lives, but... And I would say, by the way, I, I use my training in banking and finance, and you can, I use it every day. You know. uh, I use it all the time. It's very useful. But no, I'm just, all I'm saying is that it's really helpful to go beyond that. And if you go beyond that, you will be a far more effective finance person. Way, way more effective. I would say for most people, it starts when you turn inwards. If you work on yourself, and that can be meditation or a whole series of spiritual, meditation is a spiritual practice. There's been a big attempt to extract meditation from the eastern spiritual traditions and make it secular i think a lot of its value is lost when you do that and and to come back to what you're saying the really important thing about meditation if you do it properly is it's pointing towards the truth that we are part of something infinitely intelligent which is running everything (laughs) so in our little western way you know we're trying to control our lives and control this little company or big company that we're involved in and it's all very kind of stressful because we're trying to control it right once you once you tune into the idea that there's something infinitely intelligent running everything the stress falls away and you just do what you need to do you know even if you're a finance director of something massive you do what you need to do right Yeah, but that sounds, that sounds really challenging to get my head around. Well, it is challenging until you let go. I mean, I'll give you a personal example. So, so let's take headhunting, right? Just mm-hmm. as an example. Headhunting is a, is a great way to experience this. A lot of people, and I was like this in the beginning, is, is you know, you're, you're, for example, you're recruiting a finance director for a company, right? And they give you the brief. You define the brief. You analyze what's going on. You use all your skills to analyze what's required, to understand, to put that in a form which a finance person will understand. But of course, you know, you're, let's say typically we identify 300 candidates and we're working our way down to one. And along that journey, there is ample opportunity for stress, right? Because, you know, the, the person you thought would want the job doesn't want the job. You, you, you produce a brilliant candidate, the client doesn't like them you know you've got colleagues who are wondering whether you're going to hit your financial targets and is Perkis going to complete the search or not and you've got you know in a search firm you've got internal politics so you've got all kinds of moving parts right so people who try to control all of that with their minds get very very stressed I'm mm-hmm. just using that word because I've been in it for over mm-hmm. 10 years but mm-hmm. I know lots of finance people. It's, I woke up this morning actually thinking of a friend of mine who he's finance director of a big company. He earns millions of pounds and he's just fired half his workforce. Ooh. You know, so I woke up thinking about it, thinking he must be really stressed. Mm. Right? Mm. So the, 
So that's one way is you can go down that very stressful route. And one thing I've noticed is a lot of senior business people and bankers die around the age of 60, a lot. So they make lots of money and blah, blah. But a lot of them don't live, they die late 50s, early 60s. But you can see if that's the model you're applying, it's incredibly bad for your body. It's awful. Uh, it's like a death sentence. Well, it is because you've got, I mean, the guru that I follow, he calls it violence. You, you have this internal violence going on. And I've experienced that. I'm, I'm well aware of what it is. And then, but there are techniques to help you let go of all that violence internally. Meditation is the start of it, but there's, there's more. And, and what happens is the violence dies down. And this may sound trippy, I don't know, but there's this kind of internal bliss in the midst of intense activity. Most of the day, I'm intensely active, but it feels internally blissful. <laughs> well, that sounds like flow. It is, to, yeah. To give it a term. It is, it is flow. And I think the trick is, because some people have experienced flow. I mean, I think it, before I got into this, tradition i used to experience flow now and then you know like i would when i was at insead i experienced flow a lot like i really really enjoyed it i mean there was some stress but i really got immersed in it i really enjoyed it then they gave me this prize my debts were paid off within six months so if you could say you could say that was flow in a sense but it, but it was kind of intermittent and i think a lot of people have experienced flow sometimes it's like well how do i get back there like some salespeople go through phases of being on a roll and being miserable and, and they don't know how to get back to being on a roll. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can tell you what makes the difference actually. Um, <laughs> the difference is, so I know some people listening to this will have done mindfulness or yoga, right? I'm sure. So that, that's, a yeah. big, that's a big clue. I, I've done transcendental meditation for quite a long time. I just find it easier than mindfulness because the mantra takes care, you know, I just find mindfulness, your mind does keep wandering, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know people who've written books about mindfulness who say it still wanders, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I personally, I mean, some people go all the way with mindfulness. I think Steve Jobs did. He did Zen, which is similar. Steve Jobs went all the way with Zen. But uh, I just find transcendental meditation, the mantra takes care of what Buddhists call the monkey mind. It kind of makes the mind settle down, right? And mantra but is mind instrument yeah so mantra means mind instrument so essentially what happens is you know in mindfulness or zen or vipassana or whatever your mind keeps running around like your attention runs around which is what the buddhists call the monkey mind in transcendental meditation which doesn't suit everyone but suits a lot of people is you think a mantra and your maharishi who brought it to the west he said something like your mind moves towards that which is most charming basically your mind is attracted to the mantra and then it kind of settles down mm. it's a bit like sediment in water you know your mind yeah. settles down and every now and then there's a disturbance yeah and you just go back to the mantra and it settles down again right yeah and that was my first experience of consistently it's what so pure consciousness is when you don't have all these agitated thoughts yeah and my first experience of of it of doing it regularly was when i learned transcendental meditation which is 2002 and I just started experiencing twice a day. It's like you'd sit down for 20 minutes and for at least some of the time, there was this blissful nothingness, blissful, you're conscious, but there are no thoughts, right? And I noticed lots of changes like, you know, animals would kind of walk up to me and like clearly something was changing. But I realized, unfortunately, I knew all these people who were doing mindfulness or yoga or transcendental meditation and they were like, they were blissful like twice a day 
once or twice a day. But then they were still getting stressed and a lot of them were broke actually. Or, you know, I, I saw these pat the patterns were, which I put in the book, The Power of Letting Go. Yes. Basically, yeah. everyone I've met, I think I've, I, I've met one enlightened master, which is the one that I follow. I reckon Muji is probably enlightened. I've, only, I've not met him, I've heard him speak. and I've read some of his books. He's probably enlightened. Everybody else is, is stuck in one of four areas of their lives, mm -hmm. which will resonate with some people listening. So mm -hmm. I would say if you take health, relationships, career, mm -hmm. finances, those mm -hmm. four areas, mm -hmm. everybody who's not enlightened is stuck in one of those four areas, as far as I can tell. Or more than one, even? Oh, more than one. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so when I was working in executive, you know, in, in Hydric and Struggles, you know, I, you know, start, I still meet them. I started meeting, you know, really senior business people. And, you know, some of them, they have an abundance of money and they keep getting cancer. Or they're on their third marriage or... And then, you know, outside... But they're not happy. Well, well, we all have patterns, right? So, and, and some of them are super fit and they run marathons, right? But they yeah. still they still very stressed. You've probably heard, what's it called? It's called tofies, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. I haven't so heard are, that. So there are people who are slim and run marathons, but they still drop dead with heart attacks, right? Yeah. Because inside they're all furred up. But stress, yeah? Yeah, well, yeah. one thing that I experienced, it was amazing, about 18 months ago, I did this, so I have a friend called Atmadaya who has, we call him Swamiji because he's got a long name, but he, she's been following him for 10 years. And she ran this program 18 months ago called Satya Sankalpa, which is like conscious will. And uh, so my cholesterol had been creeping up for years and they were threatening me with taking statins and I'd cut out alcohol, meat, eggs, fish, cheese, all of wow. it. Right? And my cholesterol was still creeping up. So I had this, I'd used this spiritual technique. It was, I can tell you what it was, is I am Paramashiva. So Paramashiva is, is supreme consciousness. So, you know, when we meditate or do yoga, we experience pure consciousness, right? When there are no thoughts. And a lot of people in the West think that pure consciousness is passive. You know, they don't need to do anything. It's all just passive, you know, so we just kind of chill. <laughs> it's not true. Pure consciousness is, another word for it is supreme consciousness, which is Paramashiva. Supreme consciousness is, is, is very, very active. It's making everything happen all the time, right? It's the okay. source of everything. So, so this thing, exercise we do, I am Paramashiva. My cholesterol crept up to 5.9, right? I did this pro practice over and over again. I am Paramashiva, let my cholesterol fall below five, right? So a year later, I went for my routine uh, cholesterol te blood test. You know. and the nurse said, hmm, your cholesterol has fallen from 5.9 to 4.9. You, you must be taking statins or something. And I said, no, I just, just did this practice. Well, she said, well, you don't need any more blood tests. I said, well, I want to come every year, but I'm delighted that it's fallen below five because that's what I wanted. <laughs> Amazing. So, so some people call that mind over matter. I would say it's not. It's consciousness over matter. Okay. That, yeah, that's a very, very distinctive difference. It's very different actually. because yes. your mind is going crazy saying, do I need to take statins and loads of side effects and blah, blah, blah. But, but that was my first big experience of consciousness. You know, consciousness can change my body. In fact, recently, the doctors diagnosed tendonitis. I like to go running, but they said, you've got tendonitis. And I tried everything, including the drugs, which didn't fix it. And it looks as though I fixed this using consciousness. So the thing I wanted to tell you, which relates to that, is you do your meditation or yoga, whatever, which helps you to experience pure consciousness twice a day. 
what really makes the big difference and it dovetails with what we've just been saying is is the technique which i've described in chapter three of the power of letting go and that's called completion i just tell everybody who's interested about this because it's so powerful i mean i've been doing it for six years so the basic principle is that well sigmund freud and lots of people have said something painful happens when you're a child mm -hmm. when you're a small child right mm -hmm. so what swamiji says is that between the ages of two and seven, something painful happens. And if you don't do anything about it, that will run your life. Well, we can do it now, actually. I mean, can you, can you think of, okay, think of the most painful, emotionally, physically, psychologically painful thing you can remember as early as possible in your life? Mm -hmm. Can you think of it? Mm -hmm. So how old were you? Seven. Seven, all right. It could be it. There might be something earlier, but let's go with that. Seven. All right. If you want, you can tell me what it was, but that's up to you. If you want to keep it private, you can. I don't mind. Yeah, I'll keep that to myself. Okay, right. So, so, so the completion technique is very simple. So that thing that happened when you were seven, right? Where can you feel it in your body? Can you feel the pain in your body now? Mm -hmm. So where is it? In my head. In your head. Okay. So what you do in completion, I mean, the principle is very simple, is... Instead of, you know, in the, in the West, you know, we tend to analyze all that stuff. You don't need to do that. And you can do this afterwards. You don't have to do it now. Is what you do is you go back and you become seven. I mean, I, you can do it by looking in the mirror. I do it by, I just make a cup of tea and sit with my eyes closed. This is the, so the, the principle is incredibly simple. It's relive to relieve. So what you do is you close your eyes, you sit down, well, sorry, do it in this order. <laughs> sit down quietly somewhere on your own, then close your eyes. <laughs> and then just go back and become seven. And I do it like I'm in a movie. Actually, I'll give you, can I give you an example? Please. And then you can copy me, right? So I realized that I had this pattern to do with money. Like sometimes I made loads of money and sometimes I didn't. And, and there was some kind of pattern going on. And I thought, for a long time, I thought the earliest one I can find is after business school, I co-founded a software company. I had no money for a while. And it was painful. And so I was 27. So I thought, hmm, 27. Well, you know, that's not between two and seven. So I tried reliving all the stuff when I was 27. And then the other day, it finally came to me. So I, I talked to Swamiji. His, his long name is his divine holiness, Sri Nityananda Paramashivan, right? <laughs> and having been brought up as a Christian, as I see it, like people like Christ and Buddha and Krishna and Swamiji, they're, they're actually viewed as avatars. So avatar, the original meaning of the word avatar is someone who comes down. So an avatar comes down to help everybody. The difference with Swamiji is he's 42. He's still alive, right? <laughs> so I talk to him the way people talk to Jesus. But I basically, I asked him, you know, please show me what this earlier pattern is. And it suddenly dawned on me when I, you'll probably laugh at this. When I was, I must've been five or six, I was coming out of school and I, I'm closing my eyes now because I'm reliving it. I'm coming mm -hmm. out of school and my mum is waiting and it's a sunny day in Leicester, right? And I'm by this wire fence and I'm wearing these nylon shorts and I've got this t-shirt <laughs> and we're next to playing fields. And I see my mum, but my mum's friends are waiting for their children, right? And I go up to one of the other mums and I start telling her how much money I've saved up in my post office account. <laughs> like it was, I think it was three pounds. This was a long time ago. So I start explaining that I've got this post office account and I've saved up three pounds. <laughs> and my mum comes up and she's really annoyed with me for like talking about money with other people. And 
yeah. talking about myself and all this stuff. And I just feel like ashamed and painful. And I realized, okay, so I must have been five or six, but that, you know, that's an early painful incident to do with money, like shame. So what mm-hmm. I did was I sat down. I did it this morning, actually. I sat down. Often, it's very good to do this early in the morning or late at night. Okay. I sat down and I, I relived. I basically closed my eyes and I became whatever it was, five or six again. And I relived this thing from beginning to end. And I could actually feel it in my body. I could feel like a kind of tingling or buzzing feeling in, in my lower arms, and my lower legs. So that happens to some people during meditation, but, but it was happening during this reliving. And I just relived it intensely. And then after a while, there was like nothing, it stopped. Uh, and I may do it again, but that's to me how completion feels. You're essentially, you're reliving something to relieve it. And then it leaves your body. Yeah, the charge leaves your body. Exactly. It's a, a charge is a good word. And what is interesting is then you're no longer triggered. Mm. So the test for me uh, it, with all these things is, for example, you know, in my work, I meet people who've made a lot of money and sometimes they don't know how or why, right? If you have a pain pattern to do with money, that will trigger you. Like this person has tens of millions and I don't, <laughs> whatever. Or, or for example, if someone listening to this, they might suddenly find they have no job and no income, right? So if you have a pain pattern to do with money, that will probably trigger you, like, I have no income. What will my spouse say? What will my parents say? What will, will I ever have any money again? Yes. And, and, or you meet someone who's got loads of money and they've really, you know, I have friends who've got buckets of money and don't work anymore, right? All these things to do with money will trigger you, right? If you sit down and you turn inwards and you relive the painful incident, what happens is the pain pattern leaves and you're no longer triggered. Mm. What then happens is it's much easier to get a job and make money or whatever you want to do because you're not triggered the whole time. Mm-hmm. A classic example is some people, if you're triggered by rich people, you probably don't want to be around rich people. Well, being around rich people is quite helpful if you want to earn money because they're really good clients, right? Yeah. <laughs> if they're not insane, they can be really good clients. You know, I mean, how are you going to succeed at the top end of business if you don't want to be around rich people. Yeah, or if you think money is evil. Or if you think money is evil or shameful. It's not going to help, is it? Yeah, exactly. And and the same thing applies to losing weight, relationships, everything. Yeah, you can apply it to any part of your life, really. I mean, I know, sorry, just briefly, I know people who've got more money than they will ever need, but they still want a meaningful job and they find it hard to get one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know people like that as well. And I think one of the important messages in your book, The Power of Letting Go, how to drop everything that's holding you back. Mm. And it's a really lovely read. But oh, one you. of the things I think is very important is letting go doesn't mean giving up. Definitely not. No, I mean, giving up is, I didn't use that word in the Actually, I did use the word in the book. Swamiji talks about feeling powerless. So mm. when, you, when we give up, we feel powerless. Like, I, I, can't, I can't do what I want to do. I can't create the life I want to create. So we feel powerless, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, depression is, clinical depression is immense powerlessness. That was my experience. So letting go isn't giving up at all. Letting go is essentially you're letting go of your ego. Swamiji says that the ego is made up of incompletions. It's made up of all those pain patterns, right? So as we get rid of the pain patterns using the completion technique, what happens is we actually become more and more and more powerful. You become super powerful. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a paradox. You let go and you become super powerful. And the reason is that essentially 
by the way, I'm, I'm doing a new book called um, Notes from the Path to Enlightenment. Oh, that's the subtitle, rather. It's not the title. And what I'm experiencing is, as we let go of all these pain patterns, we become more and more powerful, and we don't give up at all. We actually become more and more engaged, and more and more active, and and it's more and more fulfilling. And and more in tune. I yeah, think, definitely. With, with others. In tune with everything. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we have a Facebook group called the Power of Letting Go Book Club. <laughs> but I've got this Facebook group. I'm on Facebook. I have. I have, I have 5,000 friends <laughs> and, I, and, and there's this little cue. And what I do is I, I deliberately post things which are going to be controversial. And it's quite interesting because it, it triggers lots of incompletions. Mm. Which, and then, then I can talk about completion. And I kind of, I'm having a game really. It's just, it's just, you know, Facebook is like this huge trigger fest or incompletion fest. Like people it's a whirlpool of them. <laughs> it is, yeah. But, but in a way, it's kind of useful because, I mean, I have a friend, my friend Atmadaya, she goes out looking for things which are going to trigger her so that she can identify the pain and complete it. Wow, that's brilliant. And I think so <laughs> much of us spend time trying to avoid things that might trigger us. Of course. Of course. We, we, one way is we suppress it. Another yeah. one is we judge people who are triggering us. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, all the, all the conflict in the US right now, or, you know, in Armenia, uh, you know, there's a war going on, Armenia and um, um, Azerbaijan, or conflict in the UK. Anyway, this conflict is basically people running around with pain patterns, triggering each other, in some cases, killing each other. Absolutely. No, I totally get that. So it's kind of how, but it all starts with us. I do my completion every day. I, I encourage other people to do that. And as far as I can see, that's, that's how world peace is going to happen, right? It's also mm -hmm. going to make for much healthier companies as well. Absolutely. And the other thing is th these patterns keep repeating themselves, don't oh, they, yeah. as well, until you actually do something about them. Until you remove the cause, yeah. Yeah. And even this morning, I was thinking about how you talk about it in your book, about emotions being like that football that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that bursts out of the water whenever it feels like it. And yeah, today, you hold it down I... in the swimming pool and then it comes leaping out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost like, and if people listening to this who meditate, you know, when you sit down and meditate and have those endless thoughts, it's like, it's like an incompletion is a bit like, it's like radioactive. It's emitting thousands of thoughts, right? And those, they even come up during meditation, right? Once you remove the, the pain pattern by doing this, by reliving to relieve, meditation becomes much easier because you're, you don't have these thousands of thoughts coming up. You might have a few, not thousands. <laughs> And I suppose one thing for people, John, when they are looking for work mm. and meeting someone like you or any headhunter mm. recruiter, mm. I think people pick up on these triggers or these pain oh, passions. Yeah, definitely. Most search consultants or headhunters, you know, aren't, aren't doing the spiritual work that we're talking about, but they definitely pick up on it. Yeah, they pick up on it unconsciously in, in dating. People pick up on it. We have a different vocabulary for it, but. Some people call it baggage, you know, yes. in any situation. I mean, people in a dating situation have baggage. Candidates who come for interview definitely have baggage. Yes. Occasionally I say, I'd love to help you get your next job, but I highly recommend meditation and completion. If you do that, you will be far more successful in getting your next job because you, you won't, you must have experienced this. You, know, you interview someone and they start telling you about all the, all the trauma in their last job, you know, because it's unresolved. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. going on a date with someone who talked about their ex the whole time. Yes. <laughs> and what are people's reactions? I mean, do you think people are m more open now to looking inward? Because, you know, like you said, yeah. when we grew up, that wasn't something. Yeah, I think, I think it's changing. I mean, one objective measure I look, which may be a bit controversial, is if you look at the history of massacres, I was on your LinkedIn page, and we, you know, all your studies in political violence. If you look at the history of massacres, <clears throat> as far as I can see, there hasn't been a massacre in Western Europe since World War II, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the last massacres in Eastern Europe that I know of were in the 90s. Mm -hmm. So in um, Bosnia and Serbia. Bosnia and Kosovo. Yeah. Right? I've been to both places. I've seen the graveyards. You know? Yeah. Um, Nietzsche. Yeah, the whole thing, yeah. So as far as I can see, but, you know, there are other parts of the world where they still have massacres, right? Mm-hmm. So as far as I can see, and also, you know, the population of the world has trebled since World War II, right? But at the same time, the number of deaths in wars is going down, despite the massive population. Yeah. So that's one objective measure of consciousness evolving. Because of social media, we're discovering violence more easily, right? We can see yes. it. But I, as far as I can tell, it is diminishing. I mean, for example, if you take Syria, right? Assad's father killed vast numbers of people, right? But... We didn't have social media. Someone told me the other day that for the first time in, in history, there are no wars in Latin America. You know, I may be out of date. Maybe there's a war now. Actually, I have a friend in Peru. They, she said there are bombs and, and bullets in, in Lima right now. But a few months ago, there was this time when there was no war in Latin America. And it was a, it was a big, you know, it was a milestone. <laughs> mm. So yeah. as far as I can see, yeah, consciousness is, human consciousness is evolving. And in, in a sense, violence is diminishing. Have you heard of the Hartman um, Institute, Heart Math? Yes, yeah. I, I met them once. They came to give a talk in London, yeah. 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 What they do you think? Well, yeah. they, they measure things, don't they? They do, but they also talk about, I suppose, tuning into consciousness via your heart and, yeah. and spreading you know, consciousness that way, connecting with the heart. Yeah, I mean, I think all that stuff is interesting. I mean, the reason I... The way I looked at it is, you know, the Vedic tradition, by the way, Veda just means knowledge. Mm. Veda is a Sanskrit word for knowledge. Mm. For those listening who don't know, Veda is the origin of Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism, yoga, Ayurvedic medicine, transcendental meditation. I mean, loads of things that we already do, right? And the Vedic tradition is thousands and thousands of years old. And as far as I can see, a lot of these Western discoveries, well, they are, yeah, every Western discovery I've looked at is already in the Veda. It's just we're kind of figuring out how the electrons work. <laughs> but, but the, or even subatomic particles. But you know, the Veda said this thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Mm. I mean, if it, actually it's interesting, like quantum mechanics, I'm very interested in, I don't know much about physics, but I'm very interested in it. As far as I can see, quantum mechanics is, is kind of nailing down what the Veda said thousands of years ago really they mirror each other yeah and wow. what's interesting is i know lots of engineers and and medical doctors is the physics that they were taught and we were taught at school ends in about 1920 you know it's it's uh, classical physics yeah yeah and certainly finance people you know, we're we're basically we've been taught class you know we're operate until we start meditating everything we're basically applying physics which is 100 years out of date yeah 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 okay that's kind of scary it works it works for things like airplanes or basically. oh yeah yeah it, okay but 
for people to get on with each other in the no, workplace. No, it doesn't work for that, no. No. <laughs> like, like, if I apply this pressure on this person, they will move in that direction. Or if I just talk about debits and credits all day long. Everything will be cool. Yeah. Yes, and balanced. No. <laughs> the business will be a huge success if I only do my debits and credits. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, my. But what is the secret, John? Or not, maybe not a secret, but for you, how does somebody get work-life balance? Um, well, I think it's a misnomer because work is part of life. So how can you balance one thing that's part of the other? I never understood that. <laughs> I suppose if you reframe that as how can I be happy in my work and in the rest of my life? <laughs> that sounds would, great. At the same time, I would say I'm productive and successful. And I would suggest first thing is learn to meditate, start doing it. Silent meditation I'm talking about. Could be mindfulness, Zen, Vipassana, Transcendent, anything do yoga seriously, whatever, any of those things. And then the second thing I would say is, is, is learn completion. I mean, it's in the third chapter of my book, but you know, there are videos. If you, if you type in Nityananda and completion into YouTube, so Nityananda is N-I-T-H-Y-A-N-A-N-D-A, which means eternal bliss. If you type Nityananda and, and completion into YouTube, you'll see tons of videos. But essentially what you're doing is you're learning, you're removing all of your pain patterns. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is it becomes much, much easier to create the life you want. And that's health, relationships, career, finance, everything. Fantastic. And just one final thing. There was a lovely Carl Jung quote oh, yes. one anyway, in your book about how yeah. everything that irritates us about others yeah. can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. Yes, yes. And yeah, I think Carl that's quite profound, actually. Yeah. Yeah, Carl Jung was interesting because apparently he went to India and he didn't, quite, he didn't quite connect with the Vedic tradition. He tried to. But what he said is, all, is also in the Vedic tradition. It basically says that if there's something painful in you, which is still painful, right, you will project it onto other people. So the example I give in the book is I realized after a while that I was judgmental. And that's why I was surrounded by judgmental people. <laughs> And that included girlfriends and colleagues. And, and then once I turned inwards and started dealing with this judgmental pain, all the people around me either changed or went away <laughs> and were replaced by new people. So essentially, when we deal with our own pain internally, everything around us changes. And, and Jung, Jung described that pretty elegantly. Yeah. Because I, I, I suppose a lot of us would feel that when somebody is annoying us, that they're at fault. Yeah, our conditioning is to say, they're at fault, therefore I need to fix them, which is where the violence starts, right? I need to fix that person. How do I fix them? Mm -hmm. As opposed to turning inwards and saying, well, their behavior is triggering me, so I need to find the pain within me and, and relive the original incident. And we're not taught this stuff at school, right? <laughs> if I can find the pain within myself, relive the original incident and complete it, then that person won't trigger me anymore. I'll tell you the spooky thing. The really interesting thing is earlier this year, I was dealing with a chief executive who was annoying a lot of people and demotivating loads of people, right? And I could see lots of people getting stressed about it. And what I did was I, I turned in, was I, I said, okay, he's triggering something in me. And, and so I turned in, I went back and I found, I'm finding it hard to remember what the incident was, but I went back to my early childhood. I found the painful incident. I relived it so that it wasn't painful anymore. And then first thing that happened was his behavior didn't annoy me anymore. 
Second thing was within a day or two, his behavior had changed. So the principle is, you know, this is the principle of oneness. So it's like a vibration. You're, you're cleaning up the crap and you're sending good vibrations into the well, world. Well, it's one way of saying it, but so the Vedic tradition, one of the underlying principles is Advaita, which means not two or oneness. So in the West, we talk about oneness, right? Is it, the, what happens in oneness is if you, if I relive the pain and remove this pain pattern, so I'm not triggered anymore. So I'm now complete, right? In the sense, I'm, I'm whole. Yeah. What happens is he doesn't trigger me, but, but he is part of me. We're not separate. Mm -hmm. See, in the West, we're conditioned to treat this. That, that is a separate body mind. They're separate. I need to fix them, right? But what is interesting is when I re remove my own pain, he changes. And this happens to me all the time. When I do completion, the people around me change. I don't have to say anything to them. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, it's the principle of, it is amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. The, but it's the principle of oneness. Whereas we've been, we've been conditioned to see ourselves as separate. We're not separate. Wow. And if you look at quantum mechanics, right, quantum physics, you, you, I don't know if you know, there are these experiments, entanglements, right? You do something to one particle and a particle millions of miles away. It's, it's about the direction of spin, right? They've been in these experiments and you have these particles which are vast distances apart. If you change the direction of spin on one particle, it's entangled with another particle, which is a very long way away. That particle changes and the change is faster than the speed of light, right? So that contradicts, you know, Einstein said that the speed of light is like the top speed in the universe. Well, there've been experiments in quantum mechanics which show that's not true. Wow. And they fit the principle of oneness, which the Vedas have talked about for thousands of years. And namely, you know, if I change, things you know situations thousands of miles away can change definitely my colleagues <laughs> or my customers or whoever but but does the opposite work as well then if you become angry and resentful and well, you're bitter all, we're already doing that we're already yeah. creating this mess right yes so that's effectively what's happening yeah i mean this is a hard lesson but you know we're creating everything we're creating being overweight we're creating conflict we're creating problems with our body i mean bluntly we created the coronavirus you know we trebled our population we created enormous amounts of cheap air travel like the world's most efficient way of transmitting an air, a virus flies around <laughs> deep air travel of course as a human right we cut down the rainforest and got very very close to wild animals apparently wild animals have 700,000 pathogens 700,000, right? Since 2000, we've had, I think, at least three pandemics. We had SARS, then we had MERS, the Middle Eastern one. Now we've got COVID-19, right? Yeah. But if you cut down the rainforest and then transport the animals to China and then cut them up in a market, or I if I remember correctly, with swine flu, people were living next to the pigs before they ate them, right? If you get very, very close to animals and kill them and eat them, it's hard to think of a more efficient way of picking up one of the 700,000 pathogens, right? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. And so we're picking up, as the, as the rainforests are cut down, I mean, isn't it, is the, isn't the theory that AIDS originally came from... Monkeys? Apes in, in uh, Central yeah. Africa. Well, yeah, who in cut Congo down the forest? or somewhere. Yeah, yeah. who, got, who cut, cut, bluntly, who cut down the forest and, and did all kinds of strange things with the monkeys? Mm, mm. We did. Mm. Mm. It, it didn't come out of nowhere. And yeah, so we create our own reality. We've created it, yeah. And, and but the good news is we can take responsibility and, and start changing those things. Mm. Yeah. 
cool. Well, Not everyone it... wants to hear that, but you know, no, still for the day. But yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, some will, some won't, so what? <laughs> I choose to take responsibility. But just one thing was you talk about relive to relieve. Yep. And one phrase that I quite like is when you reveal, you heal. I think revealing is the start. Revealing yeah. is the start. I find if I write down this painful incident, that already helps me a bit. But to get rid of it, you do have to relive it. So yeah. revealing is, I would say, is the first step, definitely. But even just being able to do that. And I think it takes practice, doesn't it? To, you know, this isn't a simple thing. Well, well I think it is simple, but we've do been you? conditioned to do the opposite, which is suppress it, blame it yeah. on somebody else. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's complicated, is it? You know, no. I've, created, I've created a situation I don't want. Okay, so how did I do that? And how do I, how do I do, create what I do want? That's all. Mm-hmm. Okay, ah, actually, I like that. How do I create what I do want? Exactly. Brilliant. John, thank you so much. I will leave um, the link to your book in the show notes. And also, I know you've written other books. I'll leave links to those as well. Thank you. And uh, maybe you'll come on after the next book and chat to us again. That would be wonderful. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers.